That frees us up to live a life for God's glory. Frees us up to, to not be afraid of what could happen to our lives. Our little feeble, frail lives in this world. So much can happen to us. So many things could go wrong. And the doctrine of the resurrection gives us such an anchor for life. No matter what we're facing. Today is a continuation of our study of Genesis chapter 14. So if you'll go ahead and turn there, Genesis chapter 14, we are making our way through the book of Genesis. That's the series that we're in now. We, if you're visiting for the first time, we go through books or chunks of books here at Four Corners. So um, our last study was, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, and before that was the book of Titus, and now we're doing the book of Genesis. A little bit longer, but we hope enriching as we go back to the very beginning of the Bible. And we're looking at how does God reveal himself to us from the very first pages of Scripture. As we know the Bible is God's revelation, how has he revealed himself from the get-go? And that's what we find in Genesis. We're now in chapter 14, as I said. Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 16, the first part of this chapter. And today, we finish up looking at verses 17 to 24, and we are looking at the blessed man, or the blessed man, however you want to say that, the blessed man. Last week was part one, verses one to 16. This week's part two, which is the remainder of the chapter. Abram is portrayed here as the quintessential blessed man. He's the recipient of God's blessings. He is His blessedness bleeds through on every page, but what we find in chapter 14 in particular is this is being put in the front. His blessedness is being put out in the front for us to see very practically and I think very vividly. Last week, we saw three aspects of Abram's blessedness. We saw his safety. Remember, there is this uh, political Uproar, there's this political turmoil that's going on as there's this battle between these kings, four kings versus five kings. And we get a contrast with Lot. Lot is right in the middle of it. And he gets carried off as the plunder of war. But Abram, by contrast, is dwelling in safety. Meant to communicate to us, I think, that God is watching over him. So we saw his safety. We saw his service. That not only... Is Abram blessed in a kind of circumstantial sense in that he's the recipient of things or circumstances, but his blessedness also shows through in the quality of his life, in the quality of his character. He quickly drops everything and puts his own life in jeopardy to go and rescue his nephew Lot. So we see his service, his safety, his service. And then finally, we saw his strength. That at the very end of that passage from last week, we see Abram going with just 318 men. And he is able to overtake this massive army. Now, we don't know exactly uh, whether it's a, a group of that army in the rear or whatever. But regardless, with only 318 men, he goes in and he captures everything, recaptures, I could say. I should say everything that has been captured. And he takes back his nephew Lot. So we see his strength. And we know from Scripture that as Christians, we are the offspring of Abram. We are those who have been blessed. So 
if Abram is the quintessential believer, if he's the quintessential man of faith, and if he is the quintessential blessed person, then when we come to the character of Abram, when we come to his life, when we come to God's dealings with him, we are meant to understand that his life is is a picture for us of our own lives. We walk around, we move around, and this really hit me this week in a new way. We move around, we walk around just like Abram in the world. We are the blessed ones of God just as Abram was. Ephesians 1.3 which I referenced last week, makes this very explicit. It says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Maybe this is a verse that you have learned or you've seen. It's, a, it's funny. It's at the very beginning of this massive one sentence. The Apostle Paul is really good at that. These, these massive, glorious, rich, run-on sentences. And that's what he does in Ephesians 1, verses 3, all the way to verse 14. It's just one massive sentence, and it begins with these words. And he goes through in chapter 1 of Ephesians, and he unpacks many of the details of that blessedness. But we recognize that we are like little Abrams. As I said, each of us is blessed. Let me just recap quickly a few of the things I said last week. In Christ, we are given safety. We know that this does not entail for us always that God will watch over our very lives, that God will watch over our finances or or our homes, or that God will watch over our kids in the way we would prefer it. We don't have those promises. We have promises that God is with us. We have promises that God hears our prayers. We have promises that God seeks our good and that he'll bring us safely home and that everything in our lives will be ultimately for our good. But we also know that in many ways, he does watch over us. And as I said last week, I think we'll get to see back in our lives when we get to heaven, all of the ways God did keep us safe, all of those near head-on collisions that were missed, all of those near tragedies that God moved in our favor. God keeps us safe. He watches over those who are his. In Christ, we are given a life of faith-filled service. Like Abram, we see that he, he drops what he's doing and he serves. He gives up his life. He gives up his future, potentially, to go and serve another. This is the life that Christ has given us. Our life of this kind of character is a gift. We need to see that. We need to see that it's not just, you know, God has gotten us out of hell and God has given us heaven. But God has made us new people. He's given us a new heart. He's given us a new way of life, new conduct, new behavior. We are those who live by faith-filled service. And in Christ, we are given strength and victory. In Christ, we have the full armor of God. I said last week, I think a lot of us walk around quite defeated. As Christians, we think, woe is me. I'm just a beat up, old, sinful person. I'm just a beat up, can't do anything right. I'm a failure. Woe is me. That's not, that is not the life of a New Testament Christian. The life of a New Testament Christian is by Christ I will conquer. I will conquer sin. I will conquer Satan's scheming. In the full armor of God, I will wage war against the flesh the world, and the devil. 
I will not be defeated in the face of these enemies. So we see we have all of these things in Christ. And I want to submit to you this. A couple of weeks ago or several weeks ago, I mentioned to you that there is one way we can test whether or not we're Christians. We get those all throughout Scripture, and I like to come to those when we see them. But in chapter 13, remember, we saw Abram returning. In chapter 13, we see he goes into Egypt at the end of chapter 12, and he comes out of Egypt, and he returns to Bethel. And I talked about how Abram in his life he appears to hit the reset button and he goes back to Bethel where he made that altar and he sort of goes back to the beginning and re-seeks the Lord. And I ask the question, do you have anything to return to? That's one of the ways you could test your, your, your Christianity, whether or not you really are a believer. Do you have anything to return to? We are feeble often. We fail. We stumble. But do you have anything to return to? And I want to submit to you that I think here we have another test, just in general, as we think about Abram as the quintessential man of faith, as the quintessential blessed man. Can you relate to Abram? Let me say it this way. You might say, yeah, I can relate to Abram as he stumbled back at the end of chapter 12. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. That's one story. Can you relate to this man of faith? Do you know what it's like to seek God like Abram? Do you know what it's like to experience the blessings of God? Do you know what it's like to live a blessed quality of life in any way, shape, or form? Can you relate to Abram as this man of faith? Because if you can't, you may not be a Christian. If this man seems so strange to you, his affections, his choices... His disposition, his behavior seems so strange to you. It may be God through the scripture telling you, you are not of faith. So turn to Christ. Today, trust Christ. Become an offspring of Abraham. This week, we get to see this blessed man. After his victory. So last week it was the lead up to his victory. This defeat of those kings. This uh, saving of Lot. This week we get to see Abram as a blessed man after his success. So we get the words at the beginning of verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Caterlaomer and the kings who were with him. Dot, dot, dot. Goes on. So we're looking here at the blessed man after he has already had this Success. So let's look at these verses. If you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We are looking at the blessed man. This is God's Word, verses 17 to 24. After his return from the defeat of of Caterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Ashkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated, and we'll go to God in prayer and ask that he will take his word, put it deep into our hearts. I want to draw your attention to the bulletin. You'll notice there under the sermon, we've got the sermon title, The Blessed Man, Part 2, and this week we're going to see his superior and his stand. Last week we saw, as I said, his safety, his service, and his strength. And then this week we see his superior and his stand. So let's pray, ask for the Lord's blessing, ask that God would use his word mightily in our lives, that he would use it not only in, in, a, in a general way, not only his word fall on us like a rock, but that his word would fall on us like a scalpel, each of us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God of Israel. You are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega. You are the Creator. You are our heavenly Father, you are incomprehensible, you are immortal, and you are faithful, you never lie. And Father, as we open up your word, we realize that this is your holy, God-breathed word. Lord, we just sit under it now. We ask that you would be merciful to us in our frailty, that you would speak to each of our hearts, that you would protect us now, protect our minds from distracted thoughts. We know many will come. Protect us now from lethargy. Protect us, Lord, from these things. We know that you can. We know that you desire to. We know that you desire to move us in the Christian life towards conformity more and more to your Son. And we know that you do this by means of your word, as you tell us in many places. Sanctify them, your son prayed. Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. And now, Father, we come and ask that you would do that in our hearts. We thank you for those who've gathered here this morning. We thank you, God, that you have been gracious to us in in providentially bringing us to this place. We know that there are many, many ways that we could this week have, have been uh, thwarted from coming here. We could have been uh, pushed aside from this path. But God, you've been good to us. You've brought us to the worship of your people. The worship of your name by your people. And so God, we don't want to take this lightly. Help us use it well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, we're looking at his superior. 
Abram's superior. Verses 17 to 24, if we look at all of these verses that we're covering today, they give us Abram's encounter with two kings. We have the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And it's interesting that the order Sodom, Salem, Sodom, do you see that? At the very beginning of the passage, you have the, the king of Sodom comes out, and then you've got this, this bit about Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and then it goes back to the king of Sodom. And I think what that tells us is that these interactions happen simultaneously. These things are happening together. It's not like there was Abram and then the king of Salem, and then that happened and he went on his way. And then there was another encounter with the king of Sodom. No, these are happening simultaneously with one another. This tells us, I think, that we are meant to compare these two encounters. We're meant to see them side by side. We're meant to compare the kings. We're meant to compare Abram's response to each of the kings. And as we read these two side by side, I think we get more insight into Abram's blessedness. So let's look at these verses, this interaction with Melchizedek. Let's look first at this king, verses 17 to 20. Let's read that again. After his return from the defeat of Caterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, I have entitled this point, his superior. Why? Why his superior? I mean, Abram, Abram is the blessed man, right? We just talked about his safety, talked about his service, his strength. God himself has chosen him, called him, promised him, appeared to him, directed him. Him, protected him, blessed him. He is the focus and the superior character of everything that we've seen since chapter 12. From the time Abram comes on the scene at the end of chapter 11, he's the focus. He's the superior character in the story. So how is it that we can speak at this point of Abram having a superior? Well, let me state it simply. This mysterious figure, Melchizedek, is portrayed as Abram's superior. We're going to get into this in a little bit. Now, I, you, you'll need to stay with me. You have to stay with me here. This, uh, this guy, Melchizedek, is affectionately known as Mel in the women's Bible study on Hebrews. So they have been studying Hebrews recently. Maybe, maybe you're a part of that. And, and they will understand what I mean when I say, stay with me. Uh, This is uh, not easy. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us it's not easy. He says, okay, we got to move on from the elementary principles. Then he goes on to say, let me give you this really weighty, difficult to grasp stuff about this figure, Melchizedek. So let me just start by saying he is portrayed 
in Genesis as a superior character to Abram. So let me talk a little bit about Melchizedek. Just stay with me on this. He is a a priest king. That's important. His name means king of righteousness. Melchizedek means, in Hebrew, king of righteousness. And as the king of Salem, it's very interesting. Actually, Salem is Jerusalem, which adds a little bit to it. As the king of Salem, which means peace, Salem means peace, he is also the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace. He worships the same God as Abram, the supreme creator of all. He exalts this God, and he knows his will. And as a priest, he acts as a representative and a mediator on behalf of this God. So what we have here is a mysterious priest king who enters and then exits the narrative out of nowhere. Just out of nowhere. He is a Canaanite king who worships and serves the one true God. This becomes really incredible to us when we realize that the Canaanites are, on the whole, a wicked people. They are a wicked people, participating in all kinds of abominations, idolatries, child sacrifice, and so forth. They are an evil people whom God will destroy, literally destroy, by means of the sword, with his own people, Israel. Not only that, but we remember the curse that is on the line of Canaan, that came through Ham, when Ham dishonored his father, Noah, and, God, and, and Noah cursed Canaan. So here we have this this Canaanite who is depicted in this way. He doesn't have any kind of historical rootedness. He doesn't doesn't enter, walk up to Abraham. He doesn't leave. He doesn't go on his merry way. We don't see him journey back to Salem. He just appears and then he disappears in the narrative. And his superiority over Abram can be seen in two details. So I want you to see these two details here in Genesis 14. The first one is that he gives a blessing. He blesses Abram. Hebrews 7.7 comments on this story. So stay with me. Comments on this story. And the writer says this. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So in a formal sense... The person who gives the blessing. Now, we say to each other all the time, God bless you, that kind of thing. And that's just part of speech among brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we say that. We even say that to unbelievers, hoping that they will come to be blessed by God, hoping that Christ would save them. We use this kind of language all the time. But in a formal sense, it is the superior who blesses the inferior. We see this with Jacob when he comes to Egypt and the Pharaoh. It is the superior who blesses. And we see that it is Melchizedek who blesses Abram. There's another observation we have to make. He receives a tithe or a tenth from Abram. So not only does the superior do the blessing, it is the superior who receives this tithe, this tenth of what Abram has. He gives that to Melchizedek. So he's giving a blessing, which implies his superiority, and he's receiving a tithe which implies his superiority. So Hebrews 7, 4 says, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Okay, so what's going on here? What 
is going on with this superior character who blesses Abram and receives tithes from him. Now, this is where I hope you won't get lost. Maybe you're like, too late. (laughs) But hopefully not. So what is going on with this character, Melchizedek? He's a large character. He's a significant character in the scope of Scripture. So now we're kind of walking away for a moment from Genesis 14. We'll come back, but in order to understand Melchizedek, we have to walk away for a moment and see what is said about him elsewhere in Scripture. And the first place we have to go, we're taking a journey from Genesis 14 regarding Melchizedek. We have to go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes it, saying that it is referring to the Christ. It is referring to the Messiah. Let me read you the first four verses of Psalm 110. This is what it says. The Lord says to my Lord. So Yahweh says to my Lord. This is David speaking. Yahweh says to my Lord being the Christ. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. It's a prophecy about the Christ's rule given to him by the Father. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And here's where I really want you to focus because this is the important part for our purposes. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What? What in the world is the psalmist talking about? Here we are around the year 2000 BC and we've got this story of Abram. This story that seems kind of strange with all these weird names and these kings are fighting it out. At the very end of the story, there's this, there's this random character who enters the narrative, says a little piece to Abram, and then he's gone. And a thousand years later, King David is giving a prophecy of the future Messiah, the Christ who will come. And he says, this Christ will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, this character in Genesis 14, who doesn't appear elsewhere. What in the world is going on? Let me summarize it this way. By divine oath, the Christ, the anointed king, will also be a perpetual priest. He will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, that is, not in the order of the Levites. That's the important part. Not in the order of the Levites. The Christ will be from the tribe of Judah. Judah did not have priests. The tribe of the priests of Israel were to be from the tribe of Levi. Jacob has 12 sons. And among those sons, it's the descendants of Levi who will serve as priests. Not the descendants of Judah. But the prophecy from the very beginning at the end of Genesis, we'll get it, is that the king, the king will come from Judah. David comes from Judah. David's descendant, the Christ, will also come from Judah. And so if the Christ is to be a king priest, he cannot be a priest in the typical Old Testament, Old Covenant, Levitical order. He will not be a priest in that way. 
So how will he be a priest? The writer of Hebrews says he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and his priesthood is superior to the one that came through the physical descent of Abram through Levi. The writer of Hebrews explains that this priesthood, by the way, this is Hebrews 7, so we got to go to Psalm 110, and now we're at Hebrews 7. This Levitical priesthood under the law is inferior to the priesthood of Christ, the priesthood of the Messiah. Christ's priesthood, the superiority of it, is demonstrated, catch this, this is where it gets kind of thorny, is demonstrated by Abram showing honor to Melchizedek. You have to see this. The writer of Hebrews makes this argument that to us seems strange, that that it is as though Levi is in the loins of Abram, okay? So, so in the person of his what, great-great-grandfather, Abram, there is Levi. And Levi, the, the head of the, of the priesthood, if you will, submits and shows honor over to this priest-king, Melchizedek, showing that the order of Levi, the old covenant, the, the law and its practices as a, as a way of salvation, bows down, submitting itself to the priest-king, the Christ, who is the priest, who will offer himself in the holy place as a sacrifice for sin once and for all. The priest, according to Levi, they die. This priest will never die. This priest lives forever. So listen to this, what the writer of Hebrews says about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He resembles Christ's perpetual priesthood. Do you get that? Melchizedek is just this random figure. He comes into the narrative. He relates to Abram and therefore Abram's descendants as a superior priest king who has no beginning and who has no end. His priesthood is presented in Genesis 14 as something that simply is. And that points to Christ. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25 says this about Christ. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Christ lives now, today. And he continues his priesthood forever. Consequently, he is able to save, hear this, people of God. And hear this, those of you who don't know Christ, listen to these words. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, he always lives to make intercession for them. If you are a Christian, you have Christ right now. In this moment, making intercession for you on your behalf, your personal behalf, before the throne of Almighty God. You have an advocate. You have someone who is there ready to help you every moment of every single day. 
That is the relationship of the believer to Christ, and it's perpetual. It will never end. In this life, we experience it in our bodies. At the moment of our death, we will experience it in our detached souls. And when Christ returns and raises our bodies, we will experience in glory, body and soul together united in perpetual glory in his presence. That is what Christ is as our high priest. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us, Melchizedek is a type. He's a picture. He resembles this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is meant to remind us that our king is a priest who never ceases to intercede for his people. I want to tell you something else this reminds us of. That the Old Testament is wonderful. It is filled with so many types of Christ. You know, we've seen this already as we've been going through. We've talked about the ark being a type of Christ. We've talked about the way that Noah really is a type of Christ. We've talked about the line. We've talked about so many different things. But hopefully, at the very least, I hope that this kind of reading by the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament about this random figure in the Old Testament will, will help you to see the value of reading and studying and meditating upon the Old Testament. And will help you to see that we're not New Testament Christians. We're Bible Christians from the beginning to the end. And all of Scripture is profitable. In fact, in every instance in the New Testament, when the writers of the New Testament are referring to the profitability of Scripture, they're referring to the Hebrew Scriptures. They're referring to the Old Testament being profitable, valuable for Christian people, those who live after Christ. So, back to Abram. In the midst of his victory, Abram is humble and he acknowledges that his success is from God. He pays honor to God's priest and he receives the message of verse 20. It is God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. It's amazing to see. I mean, if, if there's any moment, catch this, if there's any moment in which Abram could be filled with pride, think about it. Any moment which he would say, man, I am just awesome. It would be this. 318 men. I mean, now he's not only wealthy and he's, he, now he's a, a conqueror. He's like a little Alexander the Great in Canaan. If there's any moment for him to be filled with himself, filled with his own vanity, filled with his own value and worth, it's now. And what we see instead is a man who pays homage to some random Canaanite king priest who blesses him and gives him the word of the Lord. And it is in this reception of the blessing from God's priest, in this recognition that everything he has is from God that he is then able to face the temptation that comes from the king of Sodom. And so that turns us to our second and last point, which is his stand. We see Abram's superior. Now we come finally to Abram's stand. So look with me in verses 21 to 24. Abram's stand. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Ashkol, and Mamre take their share. What a contrast we have here between Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and peace, and this king of Sodom, the king of this exceedingly wicked city. And we're meant to, to read that into this king. If the city is wicked, we are meant to understand that the king is wicked. This is a wicked place. We've already been told that in chapter 13. And now we get the king. But what is the contrast here? Well, one king, Melchizedek, what does he do? He comes to Abram with a gift, a royal meal, bread and wine, and a blessing. When you look at it in Hebrew, the first words are blessed out of the mouth of Melchizedek. And the first words out of the mouth of this other king are, give me, blessed, give me. This king comes making demands. He he is in no place to make demands. If he fell on his face before Abram, thanking him for everything he had done, that would be one thing. But that's not what he does. He comes in arrogance and makes a command, a demand of Abram, give me. So we see that contrast. And this interaction with the king of Sodom brings us back to verse 16, where Abram is said to have brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram, we see, has rescued people and retrieved possessions. And the king of Sodom tells Abram this, you keep the stuff and give me the people. What is Abram's response? Okay, thank you. No, that's not it. Abram's response, if I could paraphrase and summarize it with, I think, what we're to understand here, I would paraphrase it this way. Before God, the God who has blessed me with everything I have, the God who is the possessor of everything that could ever be gained, he's the possessor of heaven and earth. This God, before him, I place myself under an oath that I will take nothing from you. I will profit Nothing from you. I will be enriched. Nothing from you. Not even a thread or a sandal strap. That's incredible. He doesn't even want a piece of a clothing, a piece of a shirt. He wants nothing from the king of Sodom. Why? He says it. So that the king of Sodom will have no opportunity to say, I, 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 the king of Sodom, have made this great man in the region, Abram. I have made him rich. And what we have here is a stand. Abram is making a stand against a temptation. What is the temptation that Abram is facing? He is faced with a temptation to pollute the blessing and to rob God of his glory. Abram wanted one thing. He wanted God to have all the credit for his prosperity. Abram wanted to make sure that God was the one 
who got all of the credit for all of his blessedness. Every aspect of it was from the hand of God as he lived faithfully before him. Let me give you a quote from one commentator as he describes this. He says, This proposal from the king of Sodom was an offer that would confuse worldly benefits and divine blessing. In many ways, the tension that Abram faced with the king of Sodom was far more critical than the battle. Now, that's interesting. Let me say that again. The tension that Abram faced with the king of Sodom was far more critical than the battle. For the reputation of the Lord was at stake in this proposal. And I want to make, as we finish this morning, I want to make several observations about what Abram is doing here. I want to make several observations about his actions that I think have big implications for our lives. So let me start by just saying this. Abram is more concerned with the glory of God than he is with making a life for himself. At the very basic level, we have to conclude that. You know, when I first came to Four Corners, I was kind of getting a sense for the demographic of the church about three years ago. And I think that demographic has changed. But in terms of age ranges, my, my sense coming here, and as it was explained to me, so this wasn't just my own assessment, but this was as it was explained to me, so if it was wrong, blame it on somebody else. Uh, but my assessment and, and, and what I heard was, basically, the church is really heavy around the late 20s and early 30s, and then it kind of jumps up to the 50s and around 60. So you've got, you've got a kind of concentration of these two ages. And I think that has changed a lot over the last few years, but uh, we still, I think, largely have that kind of breakdown. Late 20s, early 30s, and then also into the 50s. And I think there is a, a big temptation for these two demographics. I think there is a, a temptation among these two demographics to be really focused on making a life for yourself. And I, here's, here's what I mean by that. There's two reasons I say that. When it comes to people in their late 20s and early 30s, and at 35, I'd like to kind of push myself back into that category, I guess. But those of us who are in that, that younger category, so to speak, are those, I think, who are looking out on the next few decades. And we're saying, how do I build up my life? How do I make this life for myself work? How do I project and plan and establish, make a life? And I think folks in their 50s and 60s are kind of thinking in terms of, what am I going to do when I'm 75? What am I going to do when I'm 80? I've got I've to make sure that I'm secure in my retirement. This is an immediate concern. Even in talking with folks here, I've, I've heard these kinds of concerns. And here's the thing we understand. Those are very valid concerns. Someone in their late 20s and early 30s, if not thinking about how they're going to build a life for themselves, we would deem that irresponsible. I think that's true. And for someone who is in their 50s and who really hasn't thought a lot about retirement and isn't thinking about it at all, we would probably think in terms of, well, that's, maybe you should start thinking a few thoughts about that. So I don't think this is irresponsible. I don't think this is ungodly, I would say. But here's the temptation. 
that I think these two categories of people face, probably more than any other. And it's this. Our lives can be so focused on making a life for ourselves that we miss the glory of God, which means that every good thing that comes along, everything that gets shot onto the horizon of our lives, we grab it and take it and consume it. And what we see from Abram is that that wasn't the case at all. This was a massive potential gift for him. To receive all this wealth from Sodom would have been massive for his life in the world's eyes. A life lived according to sight would have been a great thing for him. Abram doesn't jump at it. This is my opportunity. This is my chance. Man, I am prospering. And grab hold of it and consume it and take it in. Instead, his concern is singular. The reputation of the Lord. That's what he cares about. That's what drives his life. Every decision, that's what drives him. Why? Because he knows that God is going to take care of him. It doesn't mean he's irresponsible or foolish. It simply means he lives faithfully before the Lord. Period. That's life, to live faithfully before a God whom we can trust. That's life. And that is the life of Abram, our father of faith. So that's the first observation we need to make. The second observation, I think, is that Abram serves as a witness of what it looks like to live by faith and not by sight. And in one sense, his actions are pretty inconceivable in that day and time. What Abram does in that day and time is really would have been seen as totally irrational, inconceivable, totally counter-cultural. And this is exactly why he doesn't expect his allies to do the same thing. Do you notice that in the text? He doesn't expect these other guys who helped him out to do the same thing he did. He led this. He could have said, no, guys, we're not taking this stuff. It's not good. This king is wicked. This was all the Lord's blessing. You guys came with me. You're not, we're not taking this stuff. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't, exclude, he doesn't exclude these things from these men. He just says, this is for me. Let them have their share. But I want nothing to do with it. And I think that tells us that what he did was totally countercultural. Because you know what those other guys did? Okay. And they grabbed hold of it. There's no... There's no Implication of anything otherwise. They they grabbed hold of exactly what was their share. But not this man, Abram. And it's because he is a witness to the world. Of what it looks like to live by faith and not by sight. Abram is declaring that he is not a worldly conqueror. He's not a mercenary. Abram was simply rescuing his nephew. That's it. That's what he was doing. Abram is doing this as a towering witness. He is putting forth the life of faith. He's putting forth the life of faith to to his contemporaries, those who are watching him, like the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom, by the way, this is a witness of faith in God. The king of Sodom should have seen this and been flabbergasted and said, why are you so different? Well, what is going on with you? Who is this God you worship, that you pray to, that you swear by? Who... What is going on here? I want to know this God because I, I, I could never do what you just did. He doesn't do that. This wicked king says, great, probably. And he goes back to his wicked city and ultimately gets destroyed by God. He does not turn 
after seeing this witness. But Abram is a witness. He's a witness to him. He's a witness to all of his men. He's a witness to these allies. He's a witness to his future descendants according to the flesh, the nation of Israel, who is the first reader of this book, who would read that and say, this is who we are. Father Abram, he's our father. And he's a witness to us. Descendants by faith, those of us in this room who are the offspring of Abraham, that we don't live by what our eyes see. We don't live by what brings us pleasure in the here and now. We live by faith for God's renown. And that's Abram. That's his life. And that's why I say, once again, if you read these narratives of Abram and you can't relate, it doesn't make any sense to you. You've never been there mentally. You're not a Christian. Turn to Christ, really. Not falsely, not pretentiously, not superficially. Trust him now for the forgiveness of your sins because without him, you will die in your sins. You will have no hope without this priest. After the order of Melchizedek. Another thing we need to see is that God never leaves us without support when we are tempted to be worldly. You know, I started by saying that these narratives are simultaneous. I want you to get this. Sodom, Salem, Sodom. That's how we get this narrative. They're woven together. And the reason for that is that we are meant to see Melchizedek coming to Abram as a strengthening support for his faith, his confidence in the blessing, so that he would be able to withstand the temptation from the king of Sodom. You have to see that. He's about to face a temptation. The king of Sodom is about to offer him all these worldly goods. And the Lord in his goodness, in addition to imaging Christ in the long term, in the short term, what the Lord is doing is he is buttressing, fortifying Abram's faith with these words of blessing, these reaffirmations, these reiterations. He's building up his faith. And this tells us that we are never alone when we're tempted. So if you think you have to sin this afternoon with that thing you're planning to do, or you think you have to sin tomorrow or whatever, or you think that what you did last night you had to do, it's a lie. It's a lie. You have Christ. You have his strength. You can fight temptation with Christ. God gives you what you need to fight in every moment of temptation. It doesn't mean we won't sin. But we are told that in every moment that the devil comes knocking, Christ is there. And he's saying, don't sin. Follow me. Follow me. This story reminds us. I think if Melchizedek had not come to Abram, we might be reading a different kind of story. Because Abram's just a man, you see, like us. We've already seen his feebleness, right? God knows our feebleness, and that's why he gives us what we need to fight every day. And it's interesting, Hebrews 2.18 says of Jesus, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He comes to us in these moments and helps us because he knows what it's like. The moment you're being tempted and you're saying, Oh, man, what? And you, you don't know what to do. You're, you're, just, you're just struggling. You feel it. You, you want to do this thing, but you don't want to do it. Romans 7. Christ says to us, 
I know what that feels like to be tempted. We know he was without sin. We know that he never desired sin, but in a real way, he was tempted. It's hard to understand. It's a mystery, but we know that he was. And so when we are, Christ is there sympathizing with us in the worst of temptations. Take that with you today. Take that with you tomorrow. The rest of the week, the rest of your life. He doesn't leave you alone. And finally, Abram leaves no room to be persuaded otherwise. This is important. When we face temptation, here's what we do often. Well... Okay, anytime you start a sentence with the word well, you're headed down a bad road, and that's what we do. Well, a little. A few of those threads and shoe straps. Just a few of those. A camel or two, but the rest is yours, king of Sodom. That's not what he says. Abram's words leave absolutely no room for him to be subsequently persuaded. He, he shuts the gate, boom, on this temptation. He locks himself in to God's will. He locks himself in to the righteous way that God would have him live. And he gives no room for the king of Sodom to persuade him. Oh, come on, Abram. At least take half. Maybe a quarter? 10%. No. Abram's language is so strong that he leaves no room. And here's our problem when we're tempted. We, we, we just waffle. There is a moment. I mentioned uh, Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ, a great book, steeped, I think, in medieval Catholicism in many ways, which I would find a little unappealing, especially in Reformation Week. But, but nonetheless, beautiful, rich, wonderful to the soul. And in this, it's the first time I'd ever really heard this idea so strong in college. I remember reading that book and him saying that you must escape temptation at the first moment that you experience it. If you linger, you are done. Because we can't fight Satan on our own. It's in that moment at the beginning, we, we call upon Christ and we fight in the first moment. We give no room for the devil. Without that, we will fall, keep falling, keep falling, then we'll blame God. We'll blame God. God, why don't you just take this away from me? Why don't you just make this different? It's not God's fault. He's given us what we need. Fight. At the beginning. So we learn all of this, I think. From this narrative here about the blessed man, we see his safety, his service, his strength, his superior, and his Stand. And so the question for us this morning as we close is would we trust God and live in light of the innumerable blessings he has granted us in his son, our priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our priest, our high priest, Christ himself. Thank you, Jesus, that you are there now. Lord, for all of us, you are there, Jesus. We trust you. Help our unbelief. We know 
that if we could see the depths of our hearts, we would, we would crumble in despair. But you don't show us. You encourage us day by day. You train us. You teach us. You intercede for us. You walk with us. You pour your grace out upon us. You forgive us. Jesus, you are our dearest friend, the master and lover of our souls. You are our good shepherd. And we ask you to strengthen our fight against sin, to trust in our blessedness, and to say no to the world. Jesus, apart from you, we cannot do this, so we pray for your help. In your holy name, amen.